All right, Alexander, let's talk about Avdevka. Collapsing or collapsed? What do you think? Um, right, that's a very good question. Actually. Or somewhere in the, the middle. Because the situation is utterly chaotic. I think if we have to be, um, if we have to be objective, it has collapsed in the sense that there is no, as far as I can see, no real organised defence of this town on, underway at the moment. The question is no longer can the Ukrainians hold on to Avdeevka. The question is whether they can extract their forces from Avdeevka. And it's clear that they've left it far too late. And the defence, such as it is, is now becoming incredibly disorganised. And in attempts to pull troops out of Avdeevka is becoming um, all but impossible. And that um, Ukrainian troops in Avdeevka are starting to understand this. In fact, probably they began to understand it yesterday. And that, you know, we're, we're starting to see... It, essentially a disintegration. In other words, men, soldiers taking decisions by themselves, trying to cross open fields, being attacked by Russian drones and machine guns and that kind of thing. Um, other units abandoning positions. Some people continue to put up resistance in some places. Um, it looks like communications have completely broken down. And it, as I said, it's no longer a case of the Russians gaining overall control of Avdeevka. I think that's now a done thing. It's more a situation, as I said, of trying to decide what to do with these thousands, perhaps tens of thousands for all we know, of Ukrainian troops who are still there. And as I said, cut off, uh, essentially surrounded and broken up into various, you know, holdouts, and who don't seem to know what to do, and with Kiev itself not knowing what to do about them either. What is, uh, what is going on with these reports, specifically via Reuters, uh, which claim that uh, Sirsky is sending the Azov guys into Avdevka as he's trying to retreat the, the units in Avdevka, he's sending these Azov guys to try and uh, hold on to the city a little bit more for a little bit more time. What, what, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, Reuters, Reuters is about two days late. I mean, we were getting reports about this. If you've been following, you know, the, the situation on the ground carefully, I think it was about three days ago, the General Tarnavsky, who was the um, commander of the Southern Group of Forces, which a Ukraine Southern Group of Forces, which includes Avdeevka, uh, said about three days ago, three or four days ago, that the Azov Brigade was being sent to Avdeevka in order to try to stabilise the situation. Um, but, of course, what has happened is that since yesterday, we've been getting more and more reports from the Azov Brigade itself, from the 3rd Brigade, as it calls itself now, um, about what they're facing in Avdevka. And they're describing the situation as hell. They say that they are fighting 360 degrees. In other words, that they're surrounded themselves. They are saying that they're suffering incredible losses. They're saying that there are no prepared defences that they can use. And far from stabilising the situation, it looks like they're being sucked in or have been sucked in to the engulfing chaos. So, as I said, Reuters 
if it had published this report three days ago, they would have reported what was actually correct news. But, I mean, now it's been overtaken by events. That operation has failed. I mean, the attempt to use the Azov Battalion to stay, brigade rather, to stabilize the situation has already collapsed. Now, that begs a number of questions. Is the, are the British, um, are the British concealing what is going on in Avdeevka? Or is it, which is much more likely, that they're still getting information from the Ukrainians and they're not really looking at the actual situation on the ground? And the, with the result is that they are themselves losing, um, understanding of just how bad and chaotic the situation in Avdevka has now become. Now, you know, again, early this morning and indeed continuing throughout the day, I've been getting more and more, seeing more and more reports, not just from Russian sources, but from Ukrainian ones about Ukrainian troops in Avdevka, thousands of men being essentially trapped and coming under enormous, relentless Russian fire and of the Russians continuing advances and capturing one location after another. Now, yesterday, they captured um, two major fortifications called the Air Defense Base and the Cheburasha complex. Cheburasha is a cartoon character. It reflects how this place looks on a map, but it seems to me that it's part of the air defense complex. I suspect it was a Soviet era air defense complex where surface-to-air missiles used to be based. That's my guess. I'm not going to waste time more on that. But anyway, the Russians captured those locations. It seems that the Ukrainian troops who were there were unable to retreat. Some attempted to. Most of them either surrendered or got killed. There's reports that the fields around these places are littered with bodies. I mean, it really is distressing what you're hearing. Then a couple of hours later, another Ukrainian fortified position called the filtration plant um, also fell to the Russians. The Russians then captured an, a cafe area, which is located somewhere to the west of all of these places, shutting off an, another main road. They seem to be pushing hard towards further roads, closing off all the remaining roads. As I said, the Azov people who actually entered Afdeevka are already themselves cut off. So, as I said, the, the British Reuters have, it seems to be, got got this wrong, or they're out of date. Right. Uh, a couple of questions. What comes after Avdevka? Uh, I think that's an important uh, situation to analyze because my understanding is that this is the last heavily fortified area. I'm, there are there fortified areas. I'm not saying that there aren't areas that are being defended or fortified, but this was a fortress. So Bakhmut gone, Soledad gone, Marinka gone. Avdevka was the last big fortress that NATO had constructed over 10 years. I mean, this was their staging area for what would have been an eventual invasion into uh, Donbass, which if, if you believe some of the, the reporting... And some of the analysis from two years ago, that's, that, was, that was what was eventually uh, being planned. And it was all going to, 
to originate from Abdefka. And of course, everyone knows that Abdefka was the city where many missiles were being sent from uh, from Abdefka into Donetsk city. But uh, what, what happens next um, after Avdevka? I mean, the Russians are advancing on all fronts, actually. It's not only Avdevka. It, it's across the entire front line. And um, go, going back to, to sending these units into Avdevka, this elite uh, Azov unit, uh, do you think this coincides a bit with uh, the Munich Security Conference and the fact that it's rumored that Zelensky is going to be in Munich and perhaps they made one last effort to try and hold on to Avdevka, at least to get them through the conference and perhaps to get them through the votes in the in the Senate and the House for the $61 billion. No vote is going to, to take place in the House. They're going to be in recess now till the 20th of February. But perhaps the stabilization was not so much a stabilization, but hold on for a week or two longer. Uh, you're absolutely right. Now, can I just say Zelensky is actually now in Berlin. And he's definitely okay. going so he's to gone. Munich. He's, okay. gone. he's gone. And I mean, that in itself is astonishing. I mean, you'd have thought that with a disaster, um, um, you know, taking place in Ukraine, you know, you and, and with what looks increasingly like chaos in decision making, because it's coming back to your underlying question. Uh, it's becoming increasingly clear to me that the Ukrainians themselves are, are, are absolutely unclear what they should do in this situation, because they've lost this major fortified line. But Zelensky's duty, so it seems to me, as president and supreme commander-in-chief, was in the face of this catastrophe, with thousands of Ukrainian troops being cut off. It was to remain in Kiev, take, assume responsibility, uh, uh, help the military people, do whatever they can to stabilize the situation. But instead, he does what he consistently does, is done in what he consistently does in these situations. When the situation becomes difficult, when it becomes dangerous, he leaves, he goes away. And, you know, what is he going to do in Berlin? What is he going to do in Munich, um, which is going to help to stabilize the situation now. Now, let's let's come back, however, to your main question, because I think before we ask what the Ukrainians might try to do, let, let's just ask how this whole situation has come about. Now, about two weeks ago, the Russians started to break into Avdevka itself. Um, they, they were able to capture a large area in the south, one of the main Ukrainian fortif fortifications, the Tsar's hunting lodge, uh, um, was rapidly captured. It, it was clear, even then, that the situation in Avdeevka was becoming critical. Now, what the Ukrainians needed to do, and I, you know, this is not—you don't have to be a military person or a military, you know, expert to understand this. Remember, you know. I'm not one of these things. You're not one of these things. But lots of people were saying this. They needed to pull their troops back from the outlying fortified positions, the air defense base, the filtration plant, all of those places, bring them back to Avdeevka and then organize a fighting withdrawal from Avdeevka to save their men. They did exactly the opposite. They kept their men there. They engaged in counterattacks, which were bound to fail. The Azov Brigade, the 3rd Brigade, was 
rushed to the scene and what was what would have been a serious defeat is now starting to look like a catastrophe so why did they do it well firstly the ukrainians and you know it's easy to just blame zelensky here but one gets the sense that all the ukrainian commanders zelensky zeluzhny who has been in overall charge until a couple of you know days ago Sirsky as well, the new commander, they all have this predisposition to try to defend positions after they become undefendable. And they did the same with Avdeevka. They were no doubt conscious of the importance of Avdeevka. And you're absolutely correct. It was the main, the most heavily fortified position of all. And it was close to Donetsk City. And it was important psychologically for the Ukrainians to control it because controlling Avdeevka meant that they still had Donetsk City under siege and they might perhaps one day in their own imaginations hope to launch an offensive from Avdeevka to re recapture Donetsk City. So there were these emotional things. But fundamentally, I think you are absolutely right. They didn't want to lose Avdeevka whilst these arguments in Congress were still underway. They did not want to lose Avdeevka whilst the Munich Security Conference was about to happen. Because doing so would have looked like a major loss of face and might have fed doubts, or so they feared, in the West that, you know, Ukraine is losing the war and is going to lose the war, and that further Western aid to Ukraine is therefore sending good money after bad. So they clung on. In fact, they disastrously reinforced failure. And we have this chaotic situation that we see now. Now, there is a further thing, which is where we come back to your original question, because as they were not prepared to give up of Devka and seem unwilling to accept this, this major fortified position was collapsing. They seem to have done absolutely nothing to build proper fortified lines west of Avdeevka. Now, any fortified lines they built west of Avdeevka would anyway have been less strong than the ones they've just lost in Avdeevka itself they would have had to be improvised in a hurry. And given how strong the Russian military now is, as we see, it's debatable whether even these fortified lines, had they been built, would have been strong enough to resist the Russians. But the reality, the actual reality, is that it seems that no significant fortified lines west of Avdeevka have been built at all. Now, we don't know this from the Russians, but Ukrainian soldiers and um, and I say Ukrainian soldiers, I mean the Azov Brigade, the 47th Mechanized Brigade, which has been fighting in Avdeka for a very long time. They've been sending back reports saying there are no fortifications in the area. So it looks as if once Avdeka falls, it's open, it's open territory, it's open ground for the Russians to advance further if that is what they choose to do. Now, 
I don't know what it is that the Russians plan to do. I mean, the other side of this story about Avdeevka is that the Russian military is now working at full, you know, full range of its capacities and skills. They've conducted a masterly operation in Avdeevka. They've captured this place, despite the resistance of some of Ukraine's best troops, the 110th Brigade, the 47th Mechanized Brigade, the 3rd Azov Brigade. They are also massively outmatching the Ukrainians in firepower. They're able to bomb Ukrainian fortifications, shell them. They are able to do things which we've never seen happen earlier in the war. And they've also acted with immense tactical skill, keeping the Ukrainians guessing all the time about where it, towards Avdeevka they're going to attack and attacking where the Ukrainians didn't expect them to attack. So all of this shows that the Ukrainians are up against a formidable adversary. The question is, what is this adversary now going to do? Are they going to push forward westwards from Avdeevka towards other places like, say, the big town of Pakrovsk? which lies a bit further west? Are they going to push north towards, uh, you know, Pavlograd? Are they simply going to stay where they are and attack somewhere else? We simply do not know. But whatever it is that the Russians do, everything suggests now that it's going to be carefully planned and structured in advance. And you're absolutely right. Even as Avdevka collapses, the Russians are applying pressure on every other part of the front lines. What happens at Munich now? What do you think happens at Munich now? The the excuse is that uh, the way they're coping with this, the collective West, you got a hint at that from Kirby's statement uh, the other day, which is uh, if if only $61 billion was approved, then Avdevka would not have uh, fallen. That's, that's basically how they're going to cope with all of this and how they're going to explain this away. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, right. Let me a few things to say about this. Firstly, I mean, the sixty-one billion dollars is not going to change the situation on the battlefronts. I mean, it cannot do because the the critical things that Ukraine is now short of, first and foremost, artillery shells, and by the way, not just artillery shells, but artillery, are not available in the West to be supplied to Ukraine. The same is true of air defense missiles. Um, We've now had from Undersecretary Bush of the Pentagon, and it's been, you know, an interview he's given, which has received no attention at all in the Western media, even though he's a top Pentagon official. He's given us up-to-date figures, finally, for shell production in the United States. And it's gone up from 14,000 rounds of 155 shells a month before the war started, to 28,000 rounds a month now. Ukraine says it needs 6,000 rounds a day. That is nowhere near enough. We know that the shell situation in Europe is catastrophic. We know that all the great shell uh, arsenals have been catastrophically depleted. So, you know, past $61 billion dollars, It's not going to provide Ukraine with more shells because the shells are not there. 
The same goes for air defense missiles. There's a general shortage throughout the West of air defense missiles. I mean, they're just talking about, you know, an, an, you know, an, uh, an air defense coalition. They've just announced that in Rammstein to provide Ukraine with air defense missiles. I thought they'd already announced that a year ago. I remember, you know, Ursula von der Leyen, no less, talking about how, you know, the this is a year ago, the importance of providing Ukraine with air defense uh, systems. They've given Ukraine all the air defense systems they, risk, they realistically can. They're running short of missiles. Ukraine is shut, running short of missiles, which enables the Russian Air Force now to operate across the eastern battlefields Essentially, it will. So it simply isn't realistic to say, just give them $61 billion and that's going to change the situation. You're simply throwing money at a problem rather than dealing with the underlying essential problem. The British have admitted they have no artillery left. I mean, this is an astonishing admission that I read in the uh, Daily Telegraph that the British army has no artillery. It's got no guns. It's got no shells. And the same, it seems, is true of most of the other European militaries as well. And the United States does. But it has a multiplicity of other commitments around the world, notably the one in the Middle East. What this whole story is, this thing about the $61 billion, it's just an alibi behind which Western governments are hiding as the situation in Ukraine turns to catastrophe and in order to draw attention away from their own catastrophic decision making, which we have seen throughout this war. And I just finish here by saying that there were shells that could have been given to you, that were given to Ukraine last year, about half a million shells bought from North Korea, South Korea. Americans bought half a million shells from South Korea, ruining South Korea's otherwise good relations with Russia, by the way. And um, all of those shells were squandered over the course of Ukraine's summer offensive. Ukraine ran out of shells in August. The United States at that point had to start supplying Ukraine with cluster shells if we remember. So the shell crisis long predates the problems in Congress that we're talking and hearing about now. No, they've admitted that they don't have the shells and they're not capable of matching Russia with shell production because they've announced this plan of one million drones, the UK yeah. and the, the EU partners. To me, I look at that as an admission that... We can't make shells. We can't match the Russians on shells. But forget about the shells. Don't don't worry about shells. We've got a new plan. We're going to make a million drones. This is nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. You're completely correct. I mean, you know, this is just lurching from one stupidity to another. I mean, a million drones. I mean, can I just say, by some estimates, the Russians are now producing something like 10,000 drones a day. I'm just saying, I mean, you know, so, I mean, already they are industrially producing drones on a colossal scale. But all right, put that aside. You know, we're, we're, I'm not going to dwell on the Russian figures because there's always uncertainties about those. I mean, the drones are not going to make a difference 
on the battlefields. We've been hearing for weeks now about how you, Ukraine is able to use FPV drones to substitute for artillery. We've just seen that entire theory collapse in Afghanistan. And if the, where, if the Europeans are able to make a million drones, which is, I mean, no other promise they've managed, they've made about supplying Ukraine with weapons they've been able to keep. But if they supplied those drones, it won't make any difference. Drones carry a very small explosive charge. The Russians are showing a great ability to jam them. They require extremely skilled operators, of which Ukraine has fewer and fewer because the Russians are hunting them on the battlefields. And they can't do the things that artillery does. This is obvious. Yeah, Ukraine is is out of uh, artillery. They're out of air defense. And uh, the $61 billion is not going to buy you soldiers either. I mean, no. I'm, I'm reading more and more reports about the catastrophic state of uh, of Ukraine's military conscription. They don't really talk about the mobilization or conscription much anymore either. And uh, we're talking about just a, a demographic uh, collapse. This is actually 61 absolutely. billion can't fix this. No, 61 billion can't fix it. As you right, correctly said, it won't buy you soldiers either. And since we just touched on the question of mobilization, I mean, I've been reading comments made by Ukrainian analysts and political, you know, political figures. And they're saying that this half a million men that Zelensky and Zaluzhny were talking about, that you needed to be called up, they don't exist. Ukraine can't conscript that many people, not at this late stage of the war. Um, they're suggesting that somewhere between 100 and 200,000 might be the most that Ukraine would be able to conscript with the available resources. But all the people who really, you know, were capable of fighting have already been conscripted and have been, sh the units that they served in have been shattered on the, on the battlefields. And what you would be conscripting now would be very young men in their 20s, um, if you had the time to train them, you might make soldiers out of them. But training soldiers who have no experience of war takes roughly a year, apparently, if they're to survive in modern combat. Ukraine doesn't have a year. Uh, a final question or comment, a thought that I'm having with this $61 billion. Uh, the goal from the Biden White House is to try and, and get this past uh, November 2024. Uh, you can see that that they're starting to worry that they're not going to accomplish this goal. I mean, you, you, Kirby's statement yesterday, you can see that Kirby was was shaken. He was in a panic. Yes. Uh, the, the $61 billion, obviously, it's not going to get you millions of of 155 mm shells. I mean, that's obvious. If they had these shells there, they would have already gone to Ukraine. You're not going to get these shells just because you give 61 billion to to Ukraine. Uh, is the 61 billion was it really meant to keep Zelensky in power from the standpoint of keeping the government up and running, paying pensions, paying salaries, paying the parliament members, the oligarchs? 
uh, just keeping everyone well fed for at least six months, e- even though the, the, the military is being annihilated, at least keep the political situation somewhat stable. And then you can have the collapse happen in, in November. And now they're worried that uh, Zelensky's position now may be in, in serious trouble. And I, I imagine they're going to discuss that in Munich. I mean, I'm just trying to, to I yeah, guess my, I mean, my question to you, what I'm trying to get out of you is, is, you know, obviously the 61 million to 61 billion didn't do anything from a military level. So what really was this 61 billion about? Once you take out the the ten percent for the big guy and all of the the corruption, all that stuff, all that stuff. Once you once you get down to a certain number, say fifty billion, was that just really about keeping the political situation stable while the military situation collapses? And now you're going to have political and military situation collapsing at the same time. You know that might make some sense if you were dealing with people who have a realistic understanding of the war. Now, this 61 billion package for Ukraine, it's important to remember, it it dates from the fall. They were talking about this way back in the autumn, already at the time when Zelensky was visiting the United States, which from memory was either in September or October. And um, I think at that time, if it was still Ukraine's so-called offensive was still underway, it wasn't clear that the Russians would almost immediately, as soon as the offensive petered out, themselves go on the attack. There has been this consistent underestimation of Russian military capabilities. And I think they thought that they had more time than they really do. I think they thought that probably things would quieten down through the winter, that um, you know the war would resume in the spring, you give Ukraine $61 billion. The Europeans give the Ukrainians $55 billion euro package over um, four years, which is another $12 billion basically this year. And that keeps the whole thing in Ukraine ticking along until the November election. And ticking along economically, obviously, because you know without the funding from the United States, there is a massive hole in Ukraine's budget. But also, I suspect they did think that they'd be able to hold things back militarily as well. They didn't really believe that the Russians would go on the offensive in the way that they did. On the contrary, I suspect that there were still some hopes. This is, you know, back in the early autumn, that this Krinky operation, which, by the way, has now apparently been entirely called off. It seems the one thing that Sirsky has done is that he's told the uh, the Ukrainian command to evacuate all the remaining troops from Krinky, and that might even already have happened. But anyway, they, there was probably some hope back in the early autumn that that might actually amount to something and might give the Russians problems. But they have consistently underestimated the Russians. This has been the story of the war right from almost the first day. And it's now caught up with them. And you're absolutely right. Kirby looked like he was panicking. And I get the sense that the US is panicking altogether now. They're starting to realize that they don't have the time that they thought they did, that things really are starting to fall apart, even faster than they assumed. 
Yeah. All right. Uh, my, my final thought there on the U.S. panic is, you know, just take the L. Let the media run with this story for a month and then people will forget about it. Europe, Europe is in a much different situation, but, you know, Europe is going to still be dependent on the U.S. because the EU has nowhere to go. You have nowhere to go. So no matter how angry or distrustful they are of the United States or they say the U.S. is unreliable or whatever, they have nowhere to go. So they're going to be dependent on the U.S. no matter what. The best thing the Biden White House could do is take the L, take the take the criticism for a month, and eventually you own the media. So, you know, the media will work through the cycle of the Ukraine loss, and, and that'll be that. And this fear about Europe um, not having trust in, in, in the U.S. allies, nonsense. The, the Europeans, they're, they're, they're 100% subordinate and owned by the United States. So they're not going to go anywhere. That, that would be my advice are, to the Biden White House. What would be yours? I mean, what would you say? You are, you are absolutely right. I mean, you know, what did Biden, what did Putin say to Tucker Carlson? You cannot win a propaganda battle against the United States. The United States owns the entire international media. When he meant what he was talking about, the United States, he was talking about the Biden administration and his friends. You know, the best thing politically that could happen now for the Biden administration is that Speaker Johnson maintains his position. The House does not vote this appropriation. This uh, procedural mechanism that people are talking about to try and override his decision. Just forget about it. Let this put all the blame on the Republicans. Tell everybody, you know, the $61 billion would have made all the difference. It wouldn't have done. But, you know, you can get your uh, media friends to obscure all of that. When the collapse happens, blame the Republicans of Trump and just move on. And, you know, by November in the United States, all of this would be forgotten. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's absolutely the case. I, I was reading actually an amazing article, one of the few good articles that sometimes that you still appear, which is in the Financial Times which made exactly this point, that ultimately the United States is completely secure. It's surrounded by seas and oceans. All these wars happen far away. They don't affect U.S. territory. They don't affect directly the U.S. economy. The U.S. could just sail through a debacle in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, all that matters, therefore, is public relations management which is something that these guys excel in. They would be playing to their strengths. As for the Europeans, well, they're, you know, they're stuffed. I mean, they burnt all their bridges with the Russians. They cut themselves off from Russian oil and gas. They're still pressing on with further rounds of sanctions against the Russians. They are bullying and blackmailing the only politicians in Europe, people like Orban, who speak sense, they've got nowhere to go. They are completely, completely on limb with this one. If the United States walks away, they've got nowhere to go. And they can't get their military production organized. They can't get their defense systems sorted out. It's a fantasy to think 
that they ever will. Yeah, agreed. All right. Vdoran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, Rockfin, and Twitter. X and go to the Duran shop. 15% off all t-shirts. Take care.